Shall we pray? Father, your word declares that your word is quick and powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of sunder of soul and spirit and of joints of narrow and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intents of the heart. Father, we are often uncomfortable when our hearts are exposed, even if they are only exposed to ourselves. But we pray that your spirit would do his own work in our lives, that we may, may be more like the Lord Jesus, our Savior. We ask your blessing upon our consideration of your word this morning in his name. Amen. I'd like to continue this morning in First uh, Samuel, a bit of a whirlwind tour of a number of chapters in First Samuel. And when we look at the Bible and we see this period of history, the monarchical period of about 454 years from 1040 B.C. to 586 B.C., it is a, a history under God. It is a history given to us by God. No doubt in those 454 years, many things happened that are not recorded that may well be interesting. One might say that what we have before us is what is interesting to God and what he wants us to know about that period. Similarly, when we think of the characters presented to us in that period, God presents these people, these men, these characters to us in the way that he would have us consider them, pointing out the details of their characters to us for our instruction. And as has been said before, this portion of the Bible is very readable and very interesting, very engaging, and hopefully it will speak to us in the way that God would have it speak to us. I have a very odd title this morning, Capability, Profanity, Vulnerability. I'm thinking about the, some of the characteristics of major players in these chapters from 1 Samuel 13 to 1 Samuel 17. What happens in 1 Samuel 17 without looking at your Bible? Ah, somebody knows their Bible. David and Goliath. We won't go into it in detail, but he's my vulnerability guy. <clears throat> Let's um, do what... The man who discipled me as a university student, who is, uh, oh, he would be in his uh, early 80s, Nuke Shim, worked for the Navigators, has ministered to uh, Chinese people in Waterloo, Ontario for, for, for some decades. And he was uh, a guiding factor in my early Christian life in the town of Guelph. And he, he said, Sometimes what you need to do when you read your Bible is to have an ABC Bible study. What's an ABC Bible study? Something simple, just to help you read. You know, you're just reading for the sake of reading. Well, how about a little bit of focus here, elementary focus? A, a title. Can you put a title on the chapter? Just look at it. Can you put a title on it? B, best verse. What's the best verse? And C, conclusion. What sort of a broad conclusion can you draw from this chapter? So the next time you read a chapter of the Bible, do an ABC Bible study. It's not that hard to remember ABC, right? So what do we have here? We have coming up to chapter 13, Saul fighting the Philistines. 
Saul, head and shoulders over ordinary men, had success at the Battle of Bezek, where he defeated the Ammonites. And it looks like we're off to a good start. Even though the prophet Samuel had warned the children of God that a king comes with difficulties. One of the difficulties is that if you have a good king, the nation tends to go well. If you have a bad king, he will tend to drag down the entire nation. A great deal hinges on just one person. That can be for good or for ill. The time period is roughly 1000 BC. Saul began to reign his, his 340s. That'll help you to remember. From 1040 to 1000, because David starts at 1000, nice round number. 1040 to 1000, the 40 year reign of Saul. 1000 to 960, David. 960 to 920, Solomon. After Solomon, we have the division of the kingdom. The northern kingdom got zero good kings. The southern kingdom of Judah and Benjamin had some good kings like Jehoshaphat and Josiah and so on. But in 586, they too were taken away. In the case of the southern kingdom to Babylon, in the case of the northern kingdom, the place was emptied by the Assyrians, largely emptied. So this 454-year period, it should be very instructive to us. We don't want to, as a people of God, go down similar roads and make similar mistakes. And also, we don't want to make similar mistakes in our own lives. So looking at 1 Samuel 13, there is now another resurgence of the Philistines. And it's not the Ammonites. The Ammonites um, are a problem. They go back to Deborah and Barak, the, Amma, uh, the Ammonites and Amalekites under the Midianites, if you remember in Judges 5. So the, um, the resurgence of these people has happened, and we have yet another need to rise up and to fight the Philistines at the Battle of Michmash. And we find that Samuel had told Saul to wait, and he waited a week because he wanted to offer a sacrifice to the Lord. Ridout says that in his own way, Saul not being a godly man, he had some appreciation of the importance of sacrifice, although it was more in the vein of what is superstitiously beneficial. That is a danger. That is a danger. And then he goes ahead and presumes upon himself to make a burnt offering. The burnt offering of the lamb goes back to Abraham, to Noah, to Jethro, to the, to the sacrificial system under Leviticus. This is to be done by God's mediator, by God's priest, not by Saul. He presumed upon himself to be able to do this. It was a gross presumption. Look at this verse, which I'm picking out for you as the best or maybe the worst verse in chapter 13, as things decline in Saul's leadership. Therefore said I, meaning Saul, the Philistines will come down upon me to Gilgal, and I have not made supplication unto the Lord. I forced myself, therefore, and offered a burnt offering. And Samuel said to Saul, thou hast done foolishly. Thou hast done 
foolishly. The tendency of mankind to become inflated in the ego is a very real danger. It is a very real danger. The idea that capability, that capability is all that matters, Saul being head and shoulders over ordinary men, had capability. Is capability all that matters? That's an interesting question, isn't it? Does the church of God, do the people of God, does this assembly need more capability as capability? Think carefully about that. Here we have a godless man full of capability who presumes upon spiritual things in a presumptuous manner, in a superstitious manner. And he's in leadership. This kind of capability is a disaster. It is a disaster. It is very dangerous for men to become puffed up. Even the Apostle Paul knew something about what it meant to be puffed up. He said, knowledge puffs up. It is a dangerous thing. Capability, in whatever form it may take, needs to be under the subjection of God. It needs to be under the control of God's spirit. We come then to the next chapter, where his son is the one who is able to bring about the defeat of the Philistines. It's most interesting that there is a repetition and a consistency to the behavior of Saul in that not only does he presume upon the the position of priest, he brings the ark into battle, as you can read in chapter uh, 14, verse 18. We spoke about that last year, that under Phineas and Hophni, the ungodly priests of that day, the ark was brought into battle in a superstitious manner. And they both lost their lives. And their father fell off his chair and his neck broke and he died when he heard of it. Such is the result of the superstitious treatment of the true things of God. That is the nature, I think, of of man. If we go back to the idea of capability... I've done quite a bit of thinking about what is the nature of evil and the origin of evil. Going back to the idea of capability, here we have Jonathan who's very capable, and he's following, as it were, in his father's footsteps. But this idea of capability within the universe, so to speak, how did Satan end up in a position rebelling against God? You can read in Isaiah and Ezekiel that it is pride. Lucifer had become, you might say, the most capable being in the universe by the gift and design of God. And he took that capability unto himself and he said, I demand that it be recognized. I demand worship. I will be like God. I demand worship to myself like God. That is how capability 
fed into rebellion. That is how capability fed into turning away from what is truly godly and truly spiritual. Capability can end up in disaster. Disaster. Isn't it interesting how Saul was doing these various things and blowing the trumpet and trying to motivate a few thousand people, if you read the chapter, and Jonathan takes it upon himself to go with his armor-bearer and to attack an individual garrison, which becomes the tipping point of the victory. Very interesting. You get this picture of this very capable Jonathan, and he's going up on his hands and knees, climbing up the side, and he's slaying the enemy in front of him, and the guys that are wounded, the armor-bearer does away with them. The two of them, just like a machine, going up toward the Philistine garrison. And then we have an earthquake, as you can read in verse 15, and there was a great trembling in the Philistine host. And victory came to the people of God. I wonder whether when we look at these things, we see a man like Saul, who is not godly, who does not follow godly principles, and we see his son, so able, so capable. Are we to automatically conclude and, and assume that this kind of capability is always of God and that what Jonathan in this case has done is definitely all of God? He is defeating the enemy. They are the enemy. But you know, as I look around what is called Christendom today, I see men of capability. I see that they can be used to fight against the enemy. But doesn't necessarily mean that their heart is in the right place and that they belong to God. Evidently not. Evidently not. I believe that this is a great caution to us because we notice success. Jonathan is here, like a machine, very successful, and leads these, these children of God, the earthly children of God, to victory, in, you might say, in spite of his father, in spite of his father. I'll have more to say about Jonathan in a minute, but he is impressive. But where does he end up? Sometimes you find out about what God's view of a person is by looking at the whole picture of their lives, including where did that person end up. <clears throat> when we come to chapter 15, the battle of Havilashur, you might call it, Saul over Amalek, Amalek in Exodus 17 would not be forgiven for refusing to allow the Israelites to pass into the land in peace, but insisting on ambushing them, that they were cursed by God that they would not be allowed to uh, prosper in this, in this area. And the people of God were to have no truck with them. These Am 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 Amalekites and the Ammonites, as a kind of a subset of the Moabites, 
these people were completely and utterly devoted to being against the people of God. And Saul is given instructions to wipe them out. And so we have in, in these two verses the outcome of that um, battle, which is a partial outcome, where the, the giving over to God of everything does not happen, does not quite happen. And so we have in chapter 15, Samuel coming onto the scene after the battle is over, and you can remember these words. What is the bleating of sheep in my ears? What is that sound, the prophet says? Everything was to be given over. And then we begin to read the excuses. And as Samuel turned about to go away, he laid hold of the skirt of his mantle and it rent. And Samuel said unto him, The Lord hath rent the kingdom of Israel from thee this day, and hath given it to a neighbor of thine that is better than thou. And also the strength of Israel will not lie nor repent, for he is not a man that he should repent. Then he, then he Saul, said, I have sinned. Yet honor me now, I pray thee, before the elders of the people. How sad. How sad. You can also read that he said, well, I, you know, uh, I, I saved some of the sheep for sacrificial purposes. Really. I didn't follow through because uh, the, the people, I was thinking about, you know, the, what they would think and, and, and please come with me now and make it look like we are still together. What a, what a sad commentary on um, Saul, as you might say, a politician. Look at the word pol political or politician. Poly meaning many and optical, many points of view. We have politicians today and we would like them to take in many points of view, but what is arguably one of the least important points of view? Fear of the people. What will the people think of me? Will they vote me out of office in three or four years? That's my primary concern as a politician? That's awful. That's awful. Here we have Saul, a man who doesn't understand the true meaning of sacrifice to God. He is profane. And a man who is more afraid of people and willing to throw that out as an excuse for his ungodly behavior. May God save us from that kind of thinking, worrying about what other people think and treating that which is holy to God as profane. The middle word in my title was profanity. We often associate that with the word swearing, using bad words, but what is at the heart of profanity? At the heart of profanity is the total lack of appreciation of that which is truly of God. Saul is a man who thinks that these things can be done as a matter of routine, that they are some kind of political form-based activities, they are not. The things of God are the things of God. He does not have the heart of God. He might be head and shoulders over other men, 
But is his heart in the right place? He actually has, you know, it's not even enough to say that he has disregard for the spiritual things of God. He has actually no heart appreciation of the things of God. That's a terrible place to be. And we should be very, very wary of men who are profane in their heart of hearts. That is, they do not have the grasp of that which is truly spiritual. Because that was the heart of Saul, a man whose very heart was profane and could not grasp what was truly of redemptive significance. He had no grasp of it. Played it as if it was some kind of gain. Game, rather. This kind of uh, political expediency and profanity is very sad. And we hope not to see it either in ourselves or in leadership. Then we come to a man who redefines capability. Is he like a fighting machine? <laughs> it, it's, it's, it would be funny if it wasn't amazing. What is the definition for David, who is now anointed king in chapter... Did I go ahead one? No, I'm good. What is the, uh, the heart of capability? You know, I'm reminded of, of this verse, 1 Corinthians 1.28. What, uh, how does God work? How, what does God emphasize? And the insignificant things of the world, the despised, God has chosen. He's chosen the things that are not so that he may nullify the things that are. It's almost to say that that is God's philosophy. That's how he works. How his capability redefined in, in, in 1 Samuel 17? A little stone in your hand and a little freckle-faced boy standing in front of of a guy who's like 10 feet tall, covered with armor, a great big ugly guy. What a sight. What an unbelievable sight. You look at Saul, arguably the champion of his people, probably the tallest man around, had all the armor, had the height, supposed to be champion of his... Why isn't he standing there? Where is he? Who is standing in his place has redefined capability the kind of capability that God works with, the man whose heart is not profane but belongs to God. And that capability is defined as a, a little rock, a little round stone. He could probably sling that thing at something like 200 kilometers an hour. And whether an angel of God made it go a little faster, I don't know. But it sunk right into the skull of that ugly giant and the man fell over dead, fell over dead. It sunk right into his skull. God brings what is not. He brings about those things in order to nullify what the world says is capability. And often, in the case of sacrificial things, 
The world has also no idea what true sacrifice is about. It has no idea what true redemption is about. These things are redefined for us in our Bibles. It's a remarkable thing to think about this boy who put his hand... I looked up the Hebrew interlinear Bible. and He put his hand in his shepherd's wallet... If you want it, that's what it said in the literal Hebrew translation. This is what we need here, right here. I got it. This big. And God is going to use that and cause that threatening, ungodly, evil man and all the ungodly evil behind him to be defeated. It's remarkable. In the valley of Elah, this happened. Let's look at this. How does this translate into today and the people of God? How should we regard each other? Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility. For God resisteth the proud and giveth grace to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time. Casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil, as a roaring lion, walketh about, seeking whom whom he may devour. I would say Saul had been devoured a while ago. This heart of humility to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. One of the problems with Saul was that his ego became inflated and he was put in a position in which he was not humbling himself under the mighty hand of God. When he was put in that elevated position, his head swole up and he began to think very highly of himself The management, if you're a parent raising children, the management of the development of the human ego is a very um, precarious thing. If you're a parent and you've raised children, my wife and I have raised four, the first thing that you can say is that no two of them are alike. And you talk to some parents and you say, you know, you you have three kids. Are they, are they anything alike in their personality? I have yet to meet a parent that goes, yeah, they're, they're pretty much the same. I, I've never met such a parent. The, the difference in, the, in my four is shocking. And then you talk to somebody, same thing, same thing. It's totally all different. So does that then mean that in the management of the development of the godly personality and level of self-esteem under the mighty hand of God, It has to be handled in the same way for all the kids? It cannot be. I would argue that it cannot be. I'm not a child psychologist, but um, it is a precarious thing, as I'm sure you would agree, that when we are looking at the development of our own level of self-esteem, we neither want our children to have an inflated opinion of themselves, nor do we want them to think of themselves as garbage. Both of those things are equally wrong. 
Isn't it interesting how these men in the Bible, some of them went so badly off the rails as their self-esteem went out of control. And what often goes with that? What often goes with that kind of misplaced self-esteem that we see in Saul? Insecurity. Insecurity. He was a very insecure person. And it shows in his behavior. Casting around to do whatever he thought might solve the immediate situation without looking at the heart. We need, as individuals and in raising our children, to humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God. As I say, I, I can't give you the kind of advice that a child psychologist might be able to give you, but I can give you the Bible. And the Bible tells us how we should think of ourselves, how we should function, and how we should instruct our children in a similar manner. So we have this ruddy boy, I guess he's red-haired, and in the Middle Eastern sun, I, I would imagine that red-haired people are often fair-skinned, and what happens to fair-skinned people under the Middle Eastern sun is they get lots of freckles. And we do know that he tried on the armor and it was ridiculous, completely ridiculous. And there you have this freckle-faced, red-haired kid standing in front of a 10-foot-tall giant with a sword that he barely could pick up at the end of the day, but he did. He did drag it over that giant's neck and cut his head off. <laughs> Probably used it like a saw. And the man was dead. And the evil Philistines fled. Because, you know, at the heart of it, Satan's kingdom is hollow. There's a lot of bully, and wherever you find bully, you find coward. And that's what we see in the account in 1 Samuel. See, this is the basic way in which David and Saul were totally different. Saul had a profane heart. David knew what was holy, and God owned his heart. And I've always found this verse, you might say superficially, to be odd. It says, but sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. Wait a minute. Isn't God already holy? Isn't God already glorious and pure? Why does it say to me to sanctify the Lord God in my heart? Because my heart needs to have that level of worship and respect in my heart of hearts, in my daily life. It is the exact opposite of having a profane heart. It is, it is a heart that understands that what is set aside for God and what is of God and from God is the heavenly, it is the pure, it is the holy, it is not the common. That is where my heart needs to be. I need to understand the glory, the holiness, the majesty of God in my very heart of hearts. Every day, every hour, sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And then it says, and be ready always to give an answer to every man that asketh you a reason of the hope that is in you. In other words, you're in battle. We know from Corinthians that the weapons of our warfare are not swords, but they're mighty through God to the casting down of imaginations in chapter 10. 
Our hearts need to be sanctified and to hold the things of God and the Lord Jesus Christ himself in holiness and purity and in worship of his majesty. And if that is the attitude of our hearts, we're ready for battle. We're ready to give an answer to anyone who might ask us for the reason why we have so much hope in a hopeless world. And then how it ends is also very significant. One man said that, as a Christian, should I go around looking down on other people because I'm a Christian, I'm going to heaven. You guys are really in the gutter, aren't you? Well, they may well be in the moral gutter, but one man said, the way to think of it is that you're a beggar. The difference is you found food. We're all beggars. And that's why when we interact with others, we should do it with meekness and reverence. The person across from me is the creation of God. I need not be pompous and puffed up with my knowledge. That's inappropriate. It should be possible if my heart is in the right place to go into battle with a measure of meekness and reverence for the lost, the man who is lost. I'm not lost. I've been found. I know where to find food and I've been found. How wonderful. I want to share that with you. I want you to also find that place of being in fellowship with God and knowing how to, feed, how to find food and to feed yourself from the Lamb of God, the precious Lamb of God. We are out of time, but I, I should finish off with one of these major characters, and, and that is uh, Jonathan. We have Saul, we have David, we have Jonathan. And Jonathan was a, a young man of, of, actually, you might say, similar capability, a very capable man who loved this young man, David. He appreciated him very, very deeply. It says there, it was like their souls became knitted together. I don't know if you've ever had that kind of friendship, a very deep friendship. Saul comes from a, an ungodly family. David comes from a godly family. Jonathan sees in David much that is attractive. And he joins himself to David. I want to be your friend. And they became best friends. That was good. But look at that verse at the end of chapter 23. At the end of all of these things, practically nearly the end of all of these things in this book, what does Jonathan do? He goes home. He goes home to his ungodly home. And what was his eventual fate in the very last chapter of 1 Samuel? He died with his father an ignoble death. That should make us think very carefully about what impresses us and what we should take note of. Jonathan was actually, I would say, used by God. God can use anybody. God can use the pagan, for that matter, to accomplish his purposes in history. And here you have a very capable man, 
who appreciates deeply this godly man named David who would be king, and he knew it. Saul had already anointed him. And yet, the choice is there to go back home. And unfortunately, the, at the end of his days, he is found dying with his father. Very sad. Very sad. If you fast forward to the next book and go to chapter 6, you find out that this is what is in the heart of this family. Saul's daughter, not Merab the first, because that one didn't work out with David, but Michal did. And when the ark was brought to its place in Jerusalem, near Jerusalem, David danced before the Lord. It was a holy dance. His heart was totally enthralled with God and in worshiping God, and he danced with abandon. It was a holy dance. And what did his wife think of this? She despised him. In other words, she had exactly the kind of profane heart that her father had. She had no appreciation of that which was holy. She had no grasp of holy joy whatsoever. Beware of such people. They cannot grasp what you can grasp as a believer. That's very sobering. That is because it is a work of God to change the heart, to change your heart of hearts so that you know what is holy and what is precious and what matters to God. The world can make no sense of it. Those who are profane will consider these things to be nothings and senseless and crazy. And that is because they have no knowledge of that which is holy. The heart of profanity is out there. It is everywhere. We have to be very cautious in how close we get to it. And it is, in fact, I would say a tragedy that David's first wife was such a woman. I wonder what kind of marriage he had. I wonder what kind of concept he developed of what marriage should be when he was joined to a woman who at her heart was completely profane like her father. Very sad, very sad. <clears throat> and so, think of these three words as we leave today and as you go out into your week. Capability, is that actually what you need more of and what we need more of? It is not, in the sense that only capability that is given to God, that is owned by God, that is controlled by God, is the kind of capability that is honoring to God and which will advance his kingdom to eternity. Profanity. There is much profanity in the world. There is much that is against the heart of God. There is much unholiness. It tries to permeate your skin every day. Beware of it. Don't be like it. Your heart should be totally different and should hold the things of God to be precious. To be precious. 
The third word for you as you leave, as we leave, vulnerability. You think of a curly little red-haired guy with freckles <laughs> standing out on the battlefield between two armies with no armor on, trusting God. He was very vulnerable. And yet he won, and they won, under the hand of God, under the hand of God. Sometimes the exercise of faith means that we have to be vulnerable to God and vulnerable in the situation and trust ourselves under God. Let us have godly capability. Let us avoid all profanity. And let us be vulnerable to God and let that vulnerability to God characterize our hearts and our lives. Shall we pray? Father in heaven, we have considered your word this morning. We pray that you would apply it to our hearts and as we go back and read these chapters for ourselves, may your spirit bring out those things too that apply to us individually. May we undergo that surgery in our hearts, in our lives, in our beings, which we need so very much. Help us to put on the whole armor of God and to walk by the Spirit. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.